When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have, and I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners. And I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, powered by FanDuel. NFL Week 11, the topic on the docket today. I'm your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one who does the real heavy lifting around these parts, the one, the only Payne Insider. My shoulders are a little sore today. Are you starting to feel a little run down? Yeah, Yeah, well. Yeah, I'm getting there. I hit the wall. You need better form pain when you start to go through your squats and your lower body routine. But you know what? Even if you hit the wall today, if you power through this podcast, keep in mind the light at the end of the tunnel is with the holiday week upcoming. We only have one show. I know our listeners will be disappointed, but it's basically where we look to hit the reset button. Because honestly, we haven't taken a bye week uh, at all this season yet. No bye week. But we do typically, because of a lot of games on Thanksgiving Day, we push the podcast forward. We merge college football in the NFL into one. We'll probably record that late Tuesday night, so it should be out first thing Wednesday morning for you guys. So a little change of schedule for Thanksgiving week, something we've done every year. And the other thing that we have going on is the $300 Thanksgiving giveaway. So simply go to iTunes, leave a five-star review and a nice little comment. We'll draw three winners at random there. We'll put it in a populator, and we'll give away 100 bucks to three different people as a Thanksgiving thank you to all the loyal listeners. Do you feel uncomfortable when we merge college football and NFL in the same podcast? Is it like the Seinfeld episode where uh, Relationship George is starting to kill Independent George? Absolutely. That's what Without I question. But I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm a team player. I'll let you have your, your day in the sun. My my day in the sun. Yeah, there's no I in team. There is no I in team, but there is an I in insider. So take it for what you will at that particular God. side. Hey, uh, Monday night, do you want just to... Just one? Uh, I, I know you're the scholastic guy. There's, there's just multiple eyes in. Yeah, there's okay. multiple eyes. And for anybody who's listened to this podcast <laughs> for years, understands exactly why there's multiple eyes in there. Oh, God. Give me a break. Uh, Monday night, you want to say anything about what we saw from uh, the Chicago Bears offense or more importantly, what we didn't see? 
you caught me off guard there, so let me kind of <laughs> retrace my thoughts and be a little PC here. <laughs> no, you don't have to be PC. It, it wasn't well, good. Our show let, gets better let, ratings when you're not PC. Let's be honest here. We want an unadulterated, unedited rant because you don't have Dan Quinn to pick on anymore. Maybe we'll take shots at Mike McCarthy one of these days, but it feels like Matt Nagy is the low-hanging fruit that remains. N- I kind of feel bad for Matt Nagy because he did something that he did not want to do. And this is where I'm going to watch my words. He wanted to fall on his own sword, found out that it probably wasn't going to be the best if he could continue on calling plays, so he handed it over to Bill Lazor, who, oof, it got worse. And that's unfathomable to think about. But it got worse. Bill Lazor was horrific on Monday night. And the things that he should have done, he didn't. Occasionally, when he decided to do those things that could work, they worked. And he just didn't do them enough. And then I think we've kind of figured out what Nick Foles is. It'll be interesting to see what transpires there moving forward. I saw they brought in another quarterback this week, but fortunately it looks like the hip back injury isn't as serious as things appeared to look on the field. It's a bye week. This needs to be a complete reset. If Bill Lazor's the guy, you probably have to let him be the guy moving forward. If you decide to switch to DeFilippo and have him call plays, whatever it is, that decision needs to happen during the bye. There needs to be a changing of the offense here. All that you can do within the guidelines of the CBA, especially with the heightened protocols of COVID that just got slapped down from the league this week, you need to figure it out. And it's not going to be a complete overhaul of the offense, but you need to figure out what you are. Are you going to be a three-wide offense? Are you going to be a two-tight end set offense? Where are you going to... What are you going to call home, basically, within this offense? Hopefully... Your O-line gets a little bit healthier. Montgomery returns. You just need to figure out an identity at this point. And they don't have one. They're not sure what they want to be. There just feels like there is some talent out there. Like Allen Robinson is one of the best receivers in my mind. Cole Komet has a ton of potential. I know he's been battling some injuries. Mooney is extremely fast. I don't know. It was it was sad to watch. It was horrific play calling, play designing, you name it. It was bad out of the Chicago Bears Monday night. Yeah, it's uh, hasn't been great for Bears fans that have had to endure this. I think the craziest stat that came out of that particular performance: the Bears haven't had a top five offense since the late seventies. So little to say. This is a franchise starred for talent at the quarterback position. You mentioned some of their skill position players. Not as bleak as it appears, but when you don't get them the ball in a position to thrive, things aren't going to end well. And why it's even more infuriating is because when the Bears have to look at their division, the Minnesota Vikings have some skill position talent they can build around with Dalvin Cook, Justin Jefferson, of course, Adam Thielen. But they play the Packers twice a year as well, and it is the Green Bay Packers going on the road to Indianapolis this weekend for one of the best games, at least on paper, that we should see. And it's the Colts, a one-and-a-half-point favorite at FanDuel. Total on this game, 51 pain. And Aaron Rodgers, the last six times he's found himself in an underdog role, he has embraced that opportunity going 5-1 and one against the spread. But the Colts, as a short favorite under Frank Reich, home or road, 
They've exceeded oddsmakers' expectations, going 11-1 straight up, 10-1-1 against the number when laying four or less. And when you look at the Packers' performance last weekend against the Jags, I found it interesting because people who want to dig in the box score goes, well, Green Bay dominated, Jacksonville got a punt return, this, that, and the other. Yet you read some of the beat writers, and they had similar sentiments to what you and I did, that the Packers were extremely fortunate to win that football game because if Jacksonville executes, things work out a little bit different. Either way, here we are in a game that we've seen the number move a decent amount, got as high as three, started to see some resistance. Which side of the ball will ultimately determine the outcome in your opinion? Green Bay's strength, their offense against the Colts' strength, which is their defense, or their B groupings on the other side where Indianapolis may be finding its identity offensively against the Packers' defense still yet to find its footing in 2020? Let's start with the Packers' offense because like you, and we talked a little bit before the podcast, there wasn't a ton we uncovered on this game, but this side of the ball with Green Bay's offense, a little one of the tougher matchups to project. And, you know, we've seen the Packers under Matt LaFleur struggle against top five defenses. You'll look the last three weeks, it feels like Green Bay is a little out of sorts offensively. Their trending metrics kind of prove that. The run game has cooled considerably over that stretch as well, which is a little bit shocking. The first seven weeks, Green Bay was ninth in rushing success rate, but from week eight on, just 25th in rushing success rate. The other thing that we've kind of juggled this week a little bit, and it's been tough to wait, is the Packers' offensive output has probably been suppressed, I would say, the last three games, two of them at Lambeau with with rain and wind in that sample. Now you get a dome game. It looks like Alan Lazard, your number two receiver, could contribute potentially on a limited number of snaps and and left tackle David Bakhtiari is a full go. The biggest thing for me, I think, in the assessment of this side of the ball is I'm I'm still not buying the Colts as a top five defense. And I think they're good. I think they're much improved. It's just the lack of competition that scares me a little bit. And I get that that is baked into the efficiency metrics. But I just think playing better quarterbacks, better offensive lines, and better offenses overall will start to show a little bit of of what Indy's defense is. They've played the eighth easiest schedule of offenses. Now you get the Packers, who are number two in offensive efficiency. If you look at who the quarterbacks Indy's faced, not a single quarterback is top 10 in QBR this season. Aaron Rodgers, number one. You look at the Colts' defense, they faced a bottom five schedule of pass-protecting offensive lines. Now you get the Packers, they're top two in both pass rush and pass block win rate. So it's just a huge jump up here in competition. The other area where Green Bay, I think, has to improve if if you think that um, they could make a potential push. And it was really interesting reading some of these articles and watching some of the pressers this week. But Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers, I would think, are going to be a little bit more aggressive. Aaron Nagler is a beat reporter for the Packers. Well, he was, not happy, he, with, he was not happy with me last year when I took some shots at the Packers, I'll tell you that much. Really? Oh, what yeah. happened? Oh, he came at me because I called the Packers the biggest fraud in the NFL because their statistics didn't suggest that they were an elite football team. And week in, week out, Packer fans decided that they wanted to have it out with me. It's not that I despise their franchise or anything along those lines. I just think it's a team that's overachieved well beyond what the metrics suggest since Matt LaFleur took over. So uh, he took umbrage with some of my comments. Well, one thing is I believe he runs his own 
Packers website. And I'm hearing he's a little out there and a little feisty. And so it doesn't shock me. My guess is he's got a little bit of Homer to him as well. Who was the college football team that made you bulletin board material? I completely Texas, forget. Was it Texas, Texas A&M? A&M. Texas yep. A&M. We call them the most overrated team in the country. Made a poster of my comment uh, back then on Fox Sports Live. I think after they did that in the locker room, they went on to lose five of the six games that they uh, had played. And Kevin, Kevin Sumlin is no longer the head coach in College Station. But. What a precipitous drop it's been for that guy. Anyways, Aaron Nagler uh, decided to pepper Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers about all of the second and 10 run plays this week. And through 10 weeks, Green Bay right now is running on second and 10 at a 45% clip. They're gaining 2.8 yards on those runs. And it was almost as if like LaFleur and Rodgers were shocked by that. At one point, Rodgers turns to the Packers analytics guy to confirm the number. He's like, uh, is this true? Analytics guy's like, yep, that's true. And and both LaFleur and Rodgers like kind of dance around it. But I think you'll know it'll be in their minds, I think or at least I hope, we'll probably see a little more emphasis on some some diversity with second and long play calling this week, Todd, from the Packers offense. So it could open some things up, I think, offensively. When you talk about, again, some suppressed totals, playing in weather and wind at Lambeau versus being in a dome, potentially having Alan Lazard there playing at least some amount of snaps, MVS surging forward, and potentially, again, a little more aggressiveness here on, on second down from the Packers this week. It's such an interesting team when you talk about Indianapolis because we know that they did a lot to try and bolster their defense. But as you said, we're not quite sure what they've actually faced in terms of elite level offensive competition. So have to try and see how they perform when they step up in class. Did want to ask you about one specific player on that Colts defense, Payne. How much does it help or potentially hurt that Xavier Rhodes has a long history of playing against Aaron Rodgers twice a year as a member of the Minnesota Vikings? I think that could help a little bit. A lot of those matchups, though, did not come against a Matt LaFleur offense. And when it did, he struggled a little bit. But he was battling injury last season. So I don't really take much from that. And I talked in the offseason. I said, this is probably one of the better signings you could make, especially with a team that had championship aspirations. And it was a $3 million signing. It was a boomer bust. If he doesn't pan out, no biggie. If he regains his form and he becomes an elite corner, it's one of the best value signings of the entire season. Sure enough. Xavier Rhodes has been a lockdown corner this season under a little bit easier of a scheme with Matt Everflus. But the familiarity there, you would think, should help just a little bit. Gotcha. Always curious how some of those things, the game within the game, so to speak, uh, can correlate to a play here, a play there that can ultimately flip the outcome of a game that should be pretty close. On the other side of the ball, Payne, we look at this Colts team. They're the only team in the NFL that has allowed fewer than 10 sacks this season. It's obviously a big part of the reason why Phillip Rivers felt comfortable continuing his career and going to Indianapolis to play behind this fortress of an offensive line. Rivers has completed 69% of his passes this season, second highest mark of his career. And when you look at how he's performed over the last four games, almost seems to have reinvented himself, so to speak. Seven touchdown passes to just two interceptions uh, for a shade less than 1,200 yards. And we saw a bit of a revelation on Thursday night in their win against the Titans. People may want to highlight the special teams gaffes from Tennessee, whether it was a 17-yard punt or Goskowski missed field goal. But I think that does a disservice to a Colts offense that looks a heck of a lot more dynamic with Naheem Hines running between the tackles and catching balls out of the backfield and the emergence of the number one receiver that the Colts thought they had when they drafted Michael Pittman in the second round out of USC. That performance shouldn't have come as a shock. It really shouldn't because we emphasized last Thursday that 
and it's again worth mentioning here is is the Colts offense performs well when it, it fights in its own weight class and the only time that they've really looked poorly is weeks four and nine against the top you know two top six defenses in efficiency if you break those games out the Colts were successful in 41% of their offensive snaps in those two games against top six defenses. That's 8% below league average. In all other games, though, Indy's offense has been successful in 52% of their plays, 3% above league average. And the biggest thing, and it bodes well for Phillip Rivers, and really, if you start to dig into some of these metrics, I know everyone wants to send him to the glue factory, but that just hasn't been the case when he fights in his own weight class. Right now, number one in the NFL in passing success rate in those other seven games against non-elite defenses. Green Bay's middle of the pack, just 16th in overall efficiency. Past that, I think there's probably a few matchups that should bode well for the Colts, mostly by design and, and partly because of, of personnel with guys like Pittman, who you mentioned. Um, and, and, you know, you had Campbell missing a little bit. You've had Hilton missing a little bit of time. Pitt, Pittman's missed a little bit of time. But if you look, even with those guys missing some time, over 44% of the Colts' targets have been to running backs and tight ends. I think that's where they're going to have an advantage here. Packers' defense isn't really built to defend the middle of the field. Green Bay's giving up 12.7 yards per reception to tight ends. Green Bay has allowed 83% of running back targets to be caught for almost nine yards of reception. Only Detroit and Tennessee have allowed more receiving touchdowns to running backs than Green Bay. So, I think that probably bodes well here, even if Pittman isn't that dominant force on the outside. Probably going to have some success with Trey Burton and Mo Ali Cox and Hines catching the ball out of the backfield. There also could be some help, I think, for the Colts' ground game that's, kindly put, missing in action this year, I, I would say. There, there's some areas where Indy's been at least serviceable running, and those areas are outside the hashes and behind left tackle Anthony Costanzo. That's about it. And where Green Bay has been the most vulnerable is outside runs, and specifically where Smith lines up, which is right where Costanzo will be. So if you look on outside the hash runs and runs over left tackle, Green Bay is allowing more than 6.2 a carry in those three directions over left tackle, outside left, outside right. So that'll be interesting to see if, you know, Indy can get the ground game going just a touch. Obviously, it's important to get that going in the red zone so you can convert for sevens rather than threes. It just feels like there's some favorable matchups for the Colts, right? And you have Frank Reich, a couple extra days to prepare. I would be remiss, though, if I didn't mention this. Green Bay's defense could get a boost in the secondary. Jair Alexander is on pace to pass the concussion protocol. Kevin King was a full participant in Wednesday's practice. He's trending towards being back after not playing since week four against Atlanta. So could have some help there in the secondary returning for the Packers. Interesting. You talk about the Colts and how often they target tight ends and, and running backs. It explains why the Colts are definitely need more production from their wideouts. 107 catches this season for their wide receivers, 20th in the NFL. 1,322 receiving yards from wide receivers, 24th in the NFL. Two receiving touchdowns, good for 31st. And you mentioned some of Green Bay's shortcomings defensively. I mean, this is a team that just doesn't get a whole lot of pressure. They've also recorded the eighth most missed tackles in the NFL. So we'll see if the Colts can scheme their playmakers into space, allow them to operate one-on-one, -on -one, and hopefully reap the benefits. Before uh, we move on from this game, Payne, I did want to ask you, though, about the number in this spot. We saw the total open a little bit lower. You talked about how Packers' totals could be a slightly suppressed, given what we've seen recently. But it seems to be a battle in the market in terms of the side on this particular game. Yes, 
Colts initially took some money. Once it got to three, there was a buy in Green Bay. I don't know ultimately where this will close, but I would think with extra time and a lot of people not completely buying Green Bay and a lot of folks actually higher on Indy, wouldn't shock me to see a little more money come in on the Colts. Don't think it will get back to three, but if it does, we'll be quite telling. In terms of the total, open 49. Some sharp money there for sure. Uh, got out to 51, 51 and a half, even a couple 52s. And then there was some under money at 52 simply because of, of the two corners returning or likely returning for Green Bay. But uh, I don't know if we're going to get under the 51 here, which is which is the key number. Makes a whole lot of sense and helps explain to some of our folks that haven't exactly followed the market from start to finish why we're seeing that kind of volatility on a game like this. Staying in the AFC South, it's the Tennessee Titans off of uh, extended rest as well, taking on the Baltimore Ravens. And when you look at the numbers on this game, Payne, Baltimore, a six-point home favorite, total in the contest, 48.5. Of course, the Ravens would love to exact a measure of playoff revenge as they drop the contest to the Titans as double-digit favorites the last time we saw these teams do battle in January. But you look at these two teams right now, and playoff revenge is great for a narrative, but just getting a win, I think, would be uh, a good thing for both these teams. The Titans have lost three out of four. The Ravens, two out of three. If the season ended today, Baltimore would be in to the playoffs by the slimmest of margins, Tennessee on the outside looking in. And when you look at Baltimore, just three, 10 and one against the spread the last 14 as a favorite. And I think when we look at Baltimore, so much was made about Lamar Jackson in his MVP season and how dynamic that ground game was. Whether it's on Greg Roman or it's on the rest of the offense, it hasn't been nearly as explosive so far this season. Sure, the rushing numbers are there. They're just not as dynamic. But are there matchups they can look to exploit against the Tennessee Titans defense who we've pounded the table until we're blue in the face and said, hey, look, this is the bottom of the barrel in terms of a stop unit? I don't know. But I do want to say that, you know, pertaining to this side of the ball, I, I think what we're going to hear this week and a lot of its narrative in my mind is that the Titans' blueprint defensively in the divisional round last year was just this you know, masterful uh, game plan concocted by Vrabel and, and that the Titans are the creator of this, this blueprint to stop Lamar and the rest of the league has adopted it. And that's why the Ravens are struggling a little bit. I just don't buy that. I really don't. I'm in the camp and... That you should pick up fourth fact, and one? When given those opportunities in a playoff game? Yeah, and not just that. Like, you know, if you poke around for some information and, and some of that is is public, like, I, there was a presser after that game and Logan Ryan even came out and was like, hey, like, Buffalo kind of created the game plan for us to defend Baltimore. We, you know, we looked at what Buffalo did and even though they lost their Week 14 game, they actually held Lamar to 3.6 a carry, just two explosive runs and only 118 total rushing yards for the Ravens. So they basically lifted the game plan from Buffalo's defense, and Logan Ryan came out and was like, hey, like we were loading the box and then adding a man to the middle of the field and basically forced Lamar to beat man coverage on the outside. So we were forcing Lamar to make outside-the-hash throws against tight man coverage. And then when they weren't doing that, they were using quarters coverage. And that was basically the blueprint. And I just, you know, being open here, like Tennessee didn't beat Baltimore last season. Baltimore beat Baltimore. 
and you look into that game, the Ravens outgained Tennessee by 230 yards. Ravens literally had 92 offensive plays in that game. Baltimore averaged 6.4 yards per rush, a 59% rushing success rate. The problem was, and, and to your point there, when you include the fourth down stops, the Ravens effectively turned the ball over seven times. And that's why they lost. It wasn't anything Vrabel did. It wasn't anything the defense did. <laughs> now, you know, the Titans do have a few extra days to prepare this week. Baltimore's ground game, to your point, is is clearly not in form. We've mentioned many times that Baltimore's O-line has taken a step back this season. You lose Marshall Yonda. You, you, know, you lose your $98 million left tackle in Ronnie Staley, who's out with a severe ankle injury. Last week, Nick Boyle goes down, one of the better run-blocking tight ends. He suffers an injury. So the deck is starting to get stacked a little bit here for the offense, but Tennessee really hasn't done a good job stopping the run this season. 19th in defensive rush efficiency, 27th in rushing success rate defense, 24th in explosive run defense. It's just a very bad defense. Now, they could show well here because Baltimore is struggling and they're without some of their weapons. It's just a really tough game for me to gauge because both teams are trending poorly. We know both have holes. It feels like you know, whoever you back here, you're trying to catch the, the falling knife, so to speak. But looking right now, like the core number on this game for us is Baltimore minus like 5.3. FanDuel is dealing like 5.9. There's not enough for me to tangle here at, at this point. We came into this thinking, hey, probably a good spot for Baltimore when we projected ahead. But on the short week, you have another short week on Thanksgiving with Pittsburgh next week. Like, I don't know how much focus is going to be paid attention here. Obviously, it's a huge game. But it just doesn't feel like Baltimore is has what we're looking for here to feel comfortable laying six in this spot. You mean, I don't know what to make of this offense. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely struggling because it's not one thing that they're struggling with, right? Like, we know, one, the offensive line simply isn't good as good as last year they're not getting the push Lamar in this condensed offseason hasn't made the strides as a passer that we hoped he would be now I would just love to know what Michael Vick what type of media attention he'd be garnering in this social media area because Lamar has been a better passer than Michael Vick to this point in their careers if you match them up but he, he still continues to struggle a little bit we're not getting the the great offensive game plans. Lamar isn't throwing on first down enough, a spot where he's actually been better than he was last year. The receiving group has not come and matured and maturated at the rate that we thought it would. Miles Boykin, non-existent. Hollywood Brown, he's not a number one. So, and, and the team's telling you that, right? The team told you that when they went and signed Des Bryant. That is a <laughs> signing that says, hey, we're, we're probably a little desperate here for like a solid receiver that can run great routes and just be this target that just complements our quarterback. That's what that signing means. So I, I don't know where you, you go from here offensively. I don't know if it's going to be an elite offense again, but I do think they can at least make some strides upwards, you would think. Mark Ingram being back, not just as a player, but kind of the... The vocal guy within that huddle could help some, but this just isn't a game for me right now. Do you want to talk about the other side of the ball where Baltimore's defense can't yeah. seem to get healthy bodies out there to stuff the run when you look at no Calais Campbell, Brandon Williams, Jimmy Smith, Anthony Levine, LJ Fort. I mean, Damian Harris was able to do what he wanted seemingly when he wanted on Sunday night. 
The reason why that's got to be disconcerting because Derrick Henry running downhill, a little bit scarier back knowing that he's had extra rest leading up to this game. You know, I remember us vaguely. I'm trying to remember completely. I have all days run into the same kind of uh, thing we got going on here during football season. But listen, like the Titans offense is one that needs to break tendency. And I thought last week that was going to be the case, throw a little bit more, and then you see Arthur Smith's opening drive, and you're like, hell yeah, this is it, right? Three passes on four first downs, almost 10 yards per pass, and a touchdown. And you're like, holy shit, someone got to Arthur Smith. This is going to be positive. Once the script was gone, though, (laughs) in a game where Tennessee trailed by double digits heading into the fourth quarter, Titans ended up being 60% run for the entire game on first down. And you look, and first down passes, 14% more successful than first down runs. It's surprising that teams don't have someone on staff like charting this after every drive, but it must not be the case. In my mind, and, and you led me in the right direction, this is mostly, I think, the reason the offense has trended so poorly the last month. First six weeks, Tennessee's offense, number one in passing success rate, fourth in rushing success rate. Last four games, though, Titans are 26th in passing success rate, 21st in rushing success rate. Both those numbers can be helped if you don't run the ball every single first down and then you're not forced to pass in third and long situations with a quarterback that despite what you decide to pay him is an elite. So that's just where this comes down to. I don't think at this point the Titans are going to change all that much. And so I'm not really sure it makes sense to branch out past anything other than the run game. So if Tennessee is running early and often, I think it's really important to mention that Calais Campbell hasn't practiced this week. Uh, He's their best run defender. Interior lineman Brandon Williams hasn't practiced yet this week. And the Ravens' best run stopper from the secondary position, Jimmy Smith, also hasn't practiced this week. Now some positive is it looks like LJ Fort is back. He's far and away Baltimore's best run stopping linebacker. He's the best run defender on the team so far this season. It's obviously important that Baltimore tackles well in this spot, something they didn't do on Sunday night. And I guess maybe you give them a pass because it was rainy and sloppy and that's tough. But if you're looking, the Ravens as a whole, they've missed the 12th most tackles in the league this season. Baltimore's defense, 22nd in tackling efficiency. If you go back to last year's divisional game against the Titans, more than 65% of the rushing yards Tennessee accumulated came after contact, Todd. So (laughs) this is a game where I think Arthur Smith is going to be who he wants to be. He's going to run the ball. He's going to see film from last week and think, hey, my offensive line can push these guys around, especially if Williams and Campbell are out. Let's try to establish the run here. Baltimore is going to have to be a very good tackling team this week. And I think ultimately that's what it comes down to. If they can shut down the the run and you can have some semblance of offense, they may have a shot here. Titans better make sure their offensive line is healthy to execute that game plan. We know Ben Jones and Roger Saffold missed some time earlier this week, a unit that hasn't quite been anywhere close to the high levels we expected with the loss of Taylor Lewan that they clearly feel the impact of week in, week out. Whether it's apparent in the sack totals against or not, uh, that unit hasn't quite been nearly as aggressive or dynamic. From- I, think, I think both those guys are going to play is my understanding there. Uh, it looked like they were trending in that direction. Yes. Just know that neither of them, but I guess nobody at this point in the season is truly 100%. No, and, and it's not just the loss of Taylor Lewan. also. You, you see an offensive line that's really progressed up in Cleveland, and it's because Jack Conklin has, has made some strides there. So effectively, you're looking at this Tennessee ground game 
without its left tackle and right tackle from last season, and and they're struggling a little bit. Sunday night football pain right here in my backyard. The Kansas City Chiefs, fresh off of a bye, will take on the loss. I thought you were putting a pool in. Uh, I'm trying to put a pool in. That's a fiasco in and of itself. We're making progress. Uh, Probably have one built by 2026. Hey. So, By then you'll master the uh, the backstroke. Yeah, need to pick need to pick a couple winners between now and then to be able to finance and subsidize it. The uh, Kansas City Chiefs, an eight point favorite at FanDuel. We'll hey, you get told to that me you were in a good mood coming into this podcast. Something's changed. What's going on with you? I haven't moved from my seat. I think it's just talking to you for a half hour. It's brought my mood down oh, considerably God. already. Oh God, here we to, go. Low hanging fruit, buddy. You're going to give me the opportunity and throw the ball at the rim. I'm going to throw it down. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, an eight point favorite. Like I said, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, on the road against the Vegas Raiders. Total in this game, 56.5. We will have John Sheeran on later, and I'm sure he'll be able to explain why they're slightly above the market. Payne, I have to believe that's all COVID-related, to be quite honest. The Raiders' defense uh, in the contact tracing protocol, we're not quite sure if uh, I'm going to have to get called up to play safety. And let me tell you, my foot speed, not enough to slow down Tyreek Hill in open spaces. Really, you wouldn't say? I mean, I might try and slew foot him coming off the line. That'd be my only shot. So, listen, I the Raiders' offensive game plan back in week five was good, obviously. But the halftime adjustments that Paul Gunther and the Raiders made defensively really is what, I think, won them the game. It's really what gave the Chiefs' offense trouble. You really hadn't seen that from the Chiefs' offense before during this Patty Mahomes-like run, especially against a defense of that caliber. You go back to week five in the second half, Kansas City was successful on only 21% of their snaps. 1.2 a carry, 28% success rate through the air. Mahomes was pressured a ton. The Raiders were able to do something in that game they hadn't been able to do most of the season, which is get pressure. Las Vegas, 26th on the season in pass rush win rate. And then obviously after a few good games recently where the Raiders have been able to apply some pressure to quarterbacks, they've surged to an average defense and pressure rate. But that Week 5 game, if you look at some of these numbers, Mahomes was pressured on 47% of his total dropbacks, specifically from 11 personnel where Kansas City essentially lives 73% of the time. Mahomes was pressured on 57% of those three wide sets. I would envision off the bye with a little extra motivation of not just losing to the Raiders, but but Kansas City not being overly happy about Gruden and the gang taking victory laps around the the stadium there Damn and the team bus, bus honking horns and using using the loudspeaker there after the week five win that uh you know Andy Reid's probably going to come with a pretty good game plan here and you know past the success that Andy Reid has had off the bye you mentioned this the Raiders are, are probably going to be without a few key defenders but uh you know another handful of defensive players are going to miss practice all week due to this contact tracing this probably isn't the offense that you want to face shorthanded and, and pissed off and not having practiced before, I, w- I would think. I also believe we'll probably see a little more play action from Andy Reid. You know, Patty Mahomes in the Chiefs pass game will probably fare a little bit better here with play action, especially if, if the pressure starts to barrel down. I would also think that it's worth mentioning that three Chiefs offensive linemen are on the COVID list. It's believed to be contact tracing, but we'll have to see. This would certainly make this game a little bit different if, if all three of those offensive linemen are out. You also expect Sammy Watkins to return in this game. He was a full practice participant on Wednesday, so he should be a full go. So they're going to have their 
their complement of weapons out there. The number in this thing is is really interesting, but I think that this number <laughs> makes a lot of sense. I just don't see Kansas City's offense not bouncing back here in a major way, Todd. I mean, they're playing with a chip on their shoulder, which is always dangerous to begin with. We've seen their passing offense that was uh, more a work in progress, probably the nicest way to put it early on in the season, and no doubt that was by design. Get on track with Mahomes throwing for more than 800 yards the last two games. When you look at the way Mahomes has performed against the Raiders, 15 total touchdowns, just two interceptions, one of them, of course, coming earlier this year with the Chiefs lost as a double-digit home favorite. And I think it's pretty staggering to know what cost Kansas City that game is the fact that, hey, look, they finished a a net negative minus 64 in terms of rushing yards. The Raiders held the ball for nearly 11 minutes longer, and Kansas City knows that they can hit the home runs that are widely available if they keep Mahomes upright. Uh, I think the Raiders' passing defense, as you mentioned, it may be trending in the right direction. There's no doubt a lot of optimism out here around the Raiders especially on the defensive side of the ball. This is a different beast that they're going to try and encounter. And with Sammy Watkins back amongst others, I just don't know where the Raiders consistently find a way to get off the field. Yeah, I agree with that. And I get it. You have two young corners and Trayvon Mullen and Arnett. And people are thinking to themselves like, hey, we're trending in the right direction. We're starting to get some pressure. But you look, you play at the Browns. The total is suppressed because of weather and wind. You're at the Chargers. It's likely a lost game if two guys can hold on to footballs on the back corner fade. And then the Broncos last week, and Drew Locke was clearly injured after taking a hit in the second quarter, but you could have been trailing at halftime in that game. So, listen, I think the Raiders are better than we all expected. You look at who they've lost to. It's it's the Bills, Bucks, and Patriots. All pretty good teams, obviously. Bucks and Bills being very good. Patriots, you know, with Bill Belichick. Tough spot there as well off the Monday night game traveling across the country. So I I get the buy-in of the Raiders. I just need to see more defensively to believe it's real. And so that's kind of where I'm at on that unit. I fully expect Kansas City to do some good things here offensively, obviously. Total 57. Well, I mean, if we have questions about the Raiders' defense, I think their offense has answered an awful lot of them. And, you know, when we talk about Derek Carr, he's come uh, under a ton of scrutiny and criticism, but I think he's more than exceeded expectations this year. And you just look at some of these numbers. The the Raiders boast the NFL's top-ranked third-down offense this season, converting it better than 50%. You look at the way they're running the football, and Josh Jacobs has toted the rock for more than 300 yards and three touchdowns over the last three games. But it's not just him. Uh, Devontae Booker providing a nice change of pace back as well. And and when you look at Derek Carr, his passer rating of uh, north of 107 this season is a career high. And while he's been held to under 200 yards passing in each of the last three games, I think obviously a lot of that has been dictated by game flow, game script, and by design. PFF actually graded him out the best rated passer last week despite the diminished workload and having watched that game from start to finish there were a number of drops I mean Darren Waller catches a ball for 40 plus yards it's a touchdown a couple of other spots that are there now Carr did have an uncharacteristically great game against the Kansas City secondary that you and I are both extremely high on if you're the Las Vegas Raiders how do you go about trying to attack this Kansas City defense that no doubt is going to have a chip on their shoulder Initially, at least to your point there, the the first one is, I agree in terms of the Raiders' offense. I don't think it's shocking, though. 
you know, if you're a fan, I guess you'd be ecstatic about it. But the one thing that we said the minute Gruden was hired was like, he can coach offense. Have him do that and nothing else and you'll be fine. And we just know the time and effort that Gruden spends devising these game plans so far. And that's why they've been good offensively. I, I don't see that trending any differently. They're top 10 in overall efficiency. They have good balance between the run and the pass. Derek Carr, as you alluded to, took the next step, which is positive. He's pushing the ball down the field a little bit more, and him and Gruden are playing nice because of it. If you look at that Week 5 matchup, what you said was probably one of Derek Carr's better games in his career. I thought the game plan was awesome. I thought the offensive execution was was picture-perfect. The Raiders were able to basically control the game on the ground, 63% 63% of their runs graded successful in that game, and it allowed the Raiders to possess the ball and keep Patty Mahomes on the sidelines, so they had possession for 36 minutes. But then Derek Carr was also able to hit a few of these kill shots over the top, six explosive plays from Carr. Raiders averaged 10.8 yards per pass. So it was this perfect balance of holding on to the ball and you know, running efficiently, but also hitting these explosives off that. You had Steve Spagnuolo come out after the game, and he took complete blame for a bad game plan and he left some of his corners on islands in bad situations I'm not sure what he's going to cook up defensively this time but I would envision it's going to be a little bit different with extra time and we know Spags has had or at least shown an ability over the last few years to devise game plans specific to opponents and it's not just rolling out of bed there with saying hey we're going to do what we do that just hasn't been the case so I think there'll be a couple curveballs here that Derek Carr and the offense will have to look at but you would think knowing Gruden knowing how he likes to establish the run and seeing his opponent, that he's going to try at least early to establish the ground game because the Chiefs' defense, 30th in rush efficiency. They've allowed 58% of runs to great successful. That's 7% below league average. And you need them to be better in this spot against a sure-handed Raiders offensive line. I did see Colton Miller return to practice in a limited fashion yesterday. He's missed the last two games. I think that'll probably help if he can play, but something to monitor. But to me, it's even more important that the Chiefs offense kind of gets out, builds that lead early, so it forces the Raiders to pass a little bit more because that is where the Chiefs are best. Seventh in defensive pass efficiency. Fourth in passing success rate defense. That's 4% better than league average. All signs point to this being the healthiest that the Chiefs secondary has been all season. Legereus Sneed is playing this week. He missed uh, the Week 5 game. The Chiefs secondary appears to be you know, fully loaded. Rashad Breeland missed the first month with suspension. So now you have Sneed back. Ward's hand is fully healthy. This just feels like a time where, to me, a really good team that's well-coached went into the bye and said to themselves, like, eh, yeah, we've, we've coasted so far this season. Now it's time to kind of kick it into another gear. And this is just a spot where, I, even though the number doesn't show a lot of value, I certainly don't want to be backing the Raiders here. Understand completely where you're coming from. And Kansas City, obviously, Mm. even if they were to win out, can't control their own destiny, theoretically. Would love to be able to make up that game on the Pittsburgh Steelers and secure home field advantage as the number one seed, should they be able to get a bye. So we'll see if they find that second gear or are able to take things to another level with that extra bit of rest for the second half of the season. Uh, A game pain that we normally wouldn't cover on today's show, but given the nature of the holiday season, we'll dive into Monday Night Football. And it's a good one at that. The Los Angeles Rams on the road at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You're looking at the Bucs, a four-point favorite at FanDuel. Total on the game, 48.5. 
And when you look at the Bucks, they bounce back after a pair of lethargic efforts against both the Giants and Saints. It took them about a quarter plus to get going. Uh, you mentioned on Monday how good that defense was over the better part of two and a half quarters. All Rams team activities took place virtually yesterday after a positive COVID test. Game still on the board. Don't think this is going to have a heavy impact uh, on the contest. But you do have a pair of top 10 secondary poised to do battle. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the heavyweight matchups that we're going to see in this particular spot is the Bucks offense and their talented trio of receivers and a resurgent Ronald Jones matched up against a Rams defense who passed its first test of the season, in our opinion, with a dominant performance against the Seattle Seahawks. If you're Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich and you're crafting a game plan to slow down Aaron Donald and negate the impact of Jalen Ramsey, how do you go about doing so knowing where Tampa is strongest on the offensive side? Hope neither play. I don't think that's going to be an option, compadre. <laughs> so, you know, the one thing that the Bucks have done offensively is made some adjustments along their O-line. They moved Jensen to guard, and they're starting A.Q. Shipley at center, who they brought in after Arizona cut him before the season. It seemed to work in the inaugural implementation of that last week against Carolina. Obviously, limiting Aaron Donald is going to go a long way. You want to make him a run defender first. And that's an area where the Rams this season haven't been the best. 17th in rushing success rate defense, but it's come against the fourth easiest schedule of run offenses. It'll be interesting to see if the Buccaneers can take advantage of that. Obviously, you know they got the ground game going a little bit last week. Had an outburst against a really poor Carolina front seven. Went for 5.7 a carry. 49% rushing success rate. Obviously hit the 98-yarder from Ronald Jones. That kind of distorts the... The run carry numbers there but we'll see if they can exploit that on the interior run right at Aaron Donald and get the ground game going the Bucks haven't been the most efficient running the ball there if Tampa can't get it rolling on the ground you end up trying to move it into the strength of the Rams defense which is their secondary and we talked last week about the Rams not being tested you made mention of it here again because they played a really soft schedule of opposing passing offenses and quarterbacks I think the Rams passed the test last week, and they're going to have to do it again here And what, to me, is is a tough spot going across the country. We mentioned Jalen Ramsey. He has been basically everything the Rams could have hoped for and more. The big contract has been worth every penny to this point. Brandon Staley has been using him all over the field, and typically he had moved him to the slot so he could defend more field. That's just kind of Brandon Staley's mentality. He said, hey, if I put him out wide, you know, he's kind of in this confined space. He's good against the run. He's athletic. He's this freak. Let's put him in the middle of the field so he can cover more ground for us. And that's kind of how they had done things leading up to last week. But I think based upon the size of DK Metcalf, and we hinted at this, that Jalen Ramsey might be the only guy that could handle him physically. And Ramsey ended up eating DK Metcalf's lunch last week, held him targetless in the first half. The full the full game covered Metcalf on 30 of his 42 routes run. Metcalf, four targets, two catches, 28 yards. With the Bucks receivers, though, and having three guys, you would at least anticipate, Todd, that Ramsey plays more in the middle of the field again, which is, again, where he was he was trending the last you know few weeks prior to last week just because he can cover more space. I don't think there's this specific guy you need to shut down and probably in the slot is where Ramsey's going to line up. I would say to this point, Godwin's Tampa's best receiver. 
think you kind of let Mike Evans prove that he can be a down-to-down consistent guy on the outside. Obviously, Antonio Brown getting implemented in a little bit more. Very familiar with Tom Brady. Those two guys just seem to be really on the same page. But with that many weapons, it's tough to say, hey, have Jalen line up outside on on Evans and just let Godwin and Antonio Brown eat in the slot with Gronk over the middle. It doesn't make much sense to me. So I think we'll see Jalen back in the middle of the field this week. Yeah, and when you look at Ramsey's numbers this season, I mean, he's only been uh, in coverage against a targeted player 37 times all season long, which I think just goes to speak to the respect he commands. Uh, And we talked about it for years about Revis Island. I mean, Jalen Ramsey quickly carving out a niche for himself as well as teams just don't want to throw in his general direction. Taylor Rapp placed on IR, but the Rams will get Jordan Fuller back and one of the more unheralded stars of their secondary, undrafted free agent Darius Williams starting to really come into his own under Jalen Ramsey's leadership and you look at Aaron Donald Payne you talked about it. if the Bucks are in known passing situations he's an absolute beast and a disruptor first amongst all NFL interior alignment with an average get off speed of less than a second since the start of 2016 he's generated 312 quarterback pressures 106 more than any other interior alignment and 71 more than any other player period the fact that he's able to compile the sack numbers that he is that put him on the same level as an edge rusher and Miles Garrett is just a testament to what he means there, no doubt creating nightmares for the Bucks in game planning. On the other side, though, Payne, the Rams have offensive line concerns of their own that they're going to have to address against this tenacious Bucks defensive front. Uh, Andrew Whitworth expected to miss extended periods of time. Joe Noteboom probably going to fill in on Goff's blind side. And without Whitworth, that Rams offense really ground to a halt. Enter the Tampa Bay Bucks defensive front, number one against the rush, and so much of the Rams' offensive success predicated entirely off the ability to establish play action. Do the Bucks have a major advantage here defensively against the Rams' offense? Everything we have talked about for years in regards to Jared Goff are going to be tested here, you know, on this big stage in front of everyone in primetime, and, and sure. Sean McVay may come up with a once-in-a-lifetime offensive game plan here to give Goff and the Rams offense a chance. But candidly, I'm not sure that's going to be enough, and and I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope there's this turning of the corner moment for, for Goff. And I'm going to keep this PC, but you know this is a game that will come down to what Jared Goff has between the legs and in his chest, and that's just what this is going to be. Because all the things that that Jared Goff struggles with is exactly what makes Todd Bowles' defense what it is. Tampa Bay gets after you. They're going to tell you about it. They play downhill. They're just—it's a different breed along that defense. And if you look, Todd Bowles has blitzed on 43% of his dropbacks. Jared Goff quarterback rating drops against the blitz. The Buccaneers' defense gets pressure on quarterbacks at the second highest rate in the league. Goff is worse than ever before under pressure. 36 passer rating, completing 38% of his passes, double the interceptions than touchdowns under pressure. Of the quarterbacks that have played in at least five games this season, Jared Goff is 35th in passer rating under pressure. And you mentioned the kicker this week is that the Rams left, lost their their all-world left tackle, Andrew Whitworth, to injury. And now Jared Goff's blindside is in, in a little bit of a question. You mentioned Joseph Nopum. Did well filling in last week for 34 snaps. Only gave up one pressure, one hit in relief against Seattle. Seattle's a little bit different along the defensive line. And Noteboom's been in the league since 2018. He's actually been a guard most of the time. And last season, Noteboom played the most snaps he has in his career as a guard. 
He finished 95th in pass blocking among guards. Hard to believe that he's going to be better over a substantial sample size out on the edge, but we'll see. Sean McVay, to your point, is going to have to figure out how, like, you know, the pre-snap motion, the misdirection, the reverses, the throwbacks are, are going to work this week against a really, really aggressive Bucks defense. I think you're going to have to use the pre-snap motion. You're going to have to hope that the Bucks are super aggressive and get out of position and they leave some open gaps and areas to execute. But that could mean that you're leaving your quarterback a little bit vulnerable here because sometimes those plays take time to develop. So I think pre-snap motion is going to have to come in front of virtually every single play here. I really believe that. There's going to have to be some stuff in the ground game that's a little bit more exotic. I know that you know the Bucks' defense hasn't been quite what it was with Vita Vey there in terms of stopping the run, but still a very elite unit there. This just isn't a good matchup on this side of the ball unless McVay figures out how to consistently use the Bucks' aggressiveness against them. And even when that happens, Goff needs to to be a man, to step into the pocket and throw the ball, be willing to take a hit, be willing to hold on to the ball with, with pressure barreling down on him to get the receivers open long enough to make the throw. And that just hasn't been what Jared Goff's done his career. And that's why this side of the ball is, is really tough to envision the Rams having some success. 37 jet sweeps to Jazz Reynolds and Robert Woods. Mark it down. That works. That works. And in pre-snap motion, hopefully on like 80% of snaps. When you look at this number pain, both side and total, anything really jump out to you? We have obviously seen the total, a little bit of a battle, open 48.5, down to 47.5, now back to where it currently sits at FanDuel. Uh, but the number has ticked out a hair uh, on the Bucks as home favorites, 3.5 out to 4. The reason I mention that, because it is interesting when you consider where the Bucks closed in terms of their number against the New Orleans Saints, right in that 3.25 range, so to speak, and we're currently seeing how highly the market regards the Los Angeles Rams. Very difficult to assess because the guys that I speak with like Tampa in this spot. There are numbers, guys, though, as you kind of alluded to there, that are very high on the Rams, and this number is, let's just call it significantly high. They actually make it below the key number if you're just looking at some of the core metrics, but you know we haven't been as high on the Rams as, as some of those guys. The total here, it did open as high as 49, saw some early, early money under. I believe it touched as low as 46 and a half at a couple shops. Since then, we have seen an over move here. I would probably lean towards the initial move, personally. I don't see what the Rams are going to do here offensively, unless, again, they catch the Buccaneers with their pants down being overly aggressive. That would be the only case. I don't think there's going to be a lot of down-to-down success here. They're going to have to hit the Bucs with explosives. And maybe that's what someone sees from this, and they see that the Buccaneers' offensive pass game probably is getting a little bit better, trending forward with all of the weapons getting acclimated to one another. But it just feels like the defenses have some edges here that would uh, make going over this number a little bit of a battle. Should be one hell of a game. We've had a couple of Monday Night Football games that have left us wanting more. Let's hope this one lives up to the advanced expectations for two teams very much in the thick of the NFC race. 
I think uh, a lot of our loyal listeners, Payne, are sick and tired of hearing the two of us rant, so it's time to bring in a fresh perspective and mix things up a little bit. He joins us every Thursday on the Bet the Board podcast. You, of course, can follow John Sheeran on Twitter at jsheeran, S-H-E-E-R-H-A-N-1981. And John, before we get into the games, you know, we busted your chops yesterday and you weren't around to defend yourself on the college football <laughs> podcast. heard about the new photo you got there. You don't look like you're smiling, happy-go-lucky there. We want to try and provide this happy image of a bookmaker behind the counter, the way this NFL season has gone with underdogs covering at a pretty high clip. Yeah, I need to get an updated one for sure, Todd. I think that was after week two or three when the <laughs> money money line favorites went 14 of 16. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember that one. I remember to update it for you especially. Well, speaking of money line favorites, last weekend appeared to have all the makings of a bath for bookmakers up until the Sunday night affair where, of course, we see the New England Patriots win outright against the Baltimore Ravens. How did things shape up for the house overall last weekend? Uh, yeah, so the early games were actually not too bad. The 4 o'clock games were pretty bad, um, although it seemed um, from the profitability reports, um, Todd, like the vast majority um, of uh, money that we saw in those games was parlayed into Sunday night into the Ravens. So we had a really huge position against Baltimore um, on Sunday night football. And once that kind of fell by the wayside and we got the Patriot win and in the way that we did, it was a really excellent Sunday overall. Uh, that game, the numbers probably flatter it a little bit because of all that running on money. Uh, it wasn't necessarily all winning stakes from the game. But uh, overall, yeah, sorry to report another good weekend for us. <laughs> hey, we, we've conditioned our listeners' pain well enough that when it's a good weekend for the house, typically it's a good weekend for them. Uh, taking a contrarian approach, looking for some of those ugly ducklings on the betting board. So uh, hopefully our folks were able to profit right alongside the house. John, when we spoke to you last week, talked a little bit about the Masters too, and I don't want to pivot too far away. You know, when a favorite like Dustin Johnson comes home, knowing that he's the overall number one player in the world, typically is that good for the futures book or does it put you guys in a spot where, hey, look, we took a little bit of liability or is it the mindset these days when we go to Augusta that as long as it's not Tiger, we're going to be in a pretty damn good spot? Uh, Tiger was a really bad result, obviously the worst one in, in the field, given that he was a 40 to one shot and then obviously showed up really well in round one with his 68, I believe. So uh, yeah, he would have been a really shocking result. Um, Dustin Johnson was really well supported as well, both in the futures, excuse me, and the week of the the event itself. So uh, not a good result for us there. And I think the top tens and twenties were pretty poor as well, with a lot of uh, the fancy fancied runners uh, getting up to, to to finish well up the leaderboard. So uh, pretty expensive one overall. Uh, the only thing I would say in relation to the Masters was that. You know, the, the manner of victory, the lead that he had and the fact that he was a minus 400 shot probably took a lot of weight, uh, a lot of the interest away on the Sunday and kind of translated it towards the NFL. So I won't complain too much, uh, but my focus was also definitely on the NFL on Masters <laughs> Sunday. Yeah, I was going to say the ratings definitely not what they expected no. uh, with the event being moved from its traditional spot in the spring to the fall. But Payne, I'll flip things over to you. You can ask John the hard hitting questions about how the NFL action is starting to roll in for the weekend. Like John, it's it's about the NFL on this podcast. I want to talk. I want to talk college football on this podcast, but you haven't allowed that on a Thursday, so yeah, I'm not going to fight you too hard. Yeah, I'll let you get your golf talk in there. You can you can talk with the best of them, but this well, is about football. It's about well, the wait, NFL. Wait, wait till I start asking John about NHL futures. We got oh. a couple weeks for that before we can oh, dive no. into that end of the pool. <laughs> oh no! no. Even, even I'm not going for that one. Oh, oh, breaks my heart. Is an NHL season even going to happen? 
I like to be glass half full guy around here. Everyone who listens to this podcast weekly knows I am the beacon of light, the one that believes in an optimistic way of viewing life. So I'm going to take the positive approach and hope we get some semblance of an NHL season. What it looks like, well, that's anybody's best guess. Yeah, it didn't sound too good from the report I got last week uh, after a poker game that went on with some some people that I heard that were high up in the NHL offices. So we'll have to see. Hopefully, for the sake of our listeners, we don't have to talk about the NHL, but NFL Week 11 is here. John, fill us in a little bit. What have you seen in terms of uh, major decisions that are uh, going to be impactful for FanDuel this weekend? Uh, there's really only one that has kind of a lopsided look to it so far, and it kind of surprises me, and we're, it's one that we're definitely pretty happy with, uh, and that's Cleveland. Um, our look ahead was one and a half pain. Uh, after the respective results last weekend, it's gone to three. Uh, seeing about a 80% bias towards the Browns and the money on, on the money line and on the spread. Um, but for lots of reasons, we think this is a good spot to uh, build that position against Cleveland. We absolutely think that you know the Eagles are going to be in this game for a long period. I expect it to be a relatively low scoring game. Um, the weather looks to actually have improved a little bit since we took some pro money on the under in the game. And I just think the Eagles getting three is probably just a smidgen too much. We made it more like a, a low two, uh, just under two and a half, uh, obviously off that key number with the hook there. So um, we're more than happy to kind of continue to accommodate that money. But that's definitely the real own, only lopsided book that everyone is is obviously taking that poor Eagles results uh, here against New York, New York Giants last week to heart and, and favoring the Browns. And let me praise you on this, John. You guys have every single line available on every game. We know a lot of the books out there are a little hesitant this week. There's about six games off the board. Has that deterred any sharp action from coming in this weekend? Uh, or have you seen more of that since you guys are the only ones with, with basically every game lined? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, fundamentally, we just want to give customers the opportunity to bet on these games. There's lots of unknowns out there. Our limits are lower than on the games where we don't have the concerns. Um, but if people want to bet on these games with, with no more insight than what we have, uh, that's what we're looking to achieve. Um, I think it opens us up to a bit more sharp activity because you know we moved the line in the chief game from seven to eight off the back of the COVID breakout in in Las Vegas. We're not sure how many of those guys are going to be at. I, I think myself, the vast majority of them will get the green light on Saturday to go on Sunday. And I, I don't know that anyone betting at eight will get a whole lot of closing line value either way. Um, uh, but our limits are, are are tied to that. And the lower confidence that we have, the lower the limits will be. And therefore, uh, I think, uh, you know, you'll see some limited action from that perspective. Public probably standing off these games a little bit until they get certainty around who's going to be on the field. And I think that's uh, a good idea. Makes hey. complete sense. Have you seen anything sharp come in this week that you potentially agree with? Um, I definitely can see an angle into the under in the New Orleans game. Uh, 51 and a half. Uh, we're down to 50 now, I believe. Saw a sharp move on that a day or two ago. I, I like the game theory behind it. I think everybody expects J J uh, Jameis to start. I'm not sure he'll cut him loose. I think you'll see a re repetition of what we saw with Bridgewater last year uh, when he won all of the games when Drew Brees was out. I think you'll see him try to manage the game with Kamara a bit more. Um, I'm not sure we're going to see Jameis cooking um, in that game. So I, I like the theory of the, the Saints trying to manage that game, manage the clock, and uh, definitely respected that money. Like I said, we saw under in the Cleveland Philadelphia game, but I think that was more related to the weather, and that seems to have improved a little bit since. 
Uh, so I would kind of negate that one a little bit. And then Jacksonville, Pittsburgh is the other one, 47.5 down to 46. Um, and I like the game theory from that perspective as well. I think the Jags are going to s- struggle to score that in that game. And with Pittsburgh with a half an eye on uh, the Ravens the follow four days later, uh, I think that one makes sense as well. So a lot of total action this week. It's definitely an interesting weekend uh, when you look at some of the marquee matchups. And of course, the primetime games, John, are going to get a lot of attention starting as early as tonight. And Cardinals, uh, we know a couple weeks ago, the Seahawks were the talk of the town, undefeated. The dynamic offense could not be stopped. Some injuries have temporarily derailed the team. Now a chance to kind of salvage their hopes for an NFC West crown. What have you guys done to kind of adjust the uh, odds makers purview of the Seattle Seahawks in terms of a power number? As we saw this number open as high as five and a half in some locations, obviously that number didn't last before three more or less became the consensus. Yeah. And I've seen some sharp money just literally now, as we're talking on Arizona plus three, uh, we're a flat three right now. Um, uh, off the back of that, I think that'll come under pressure between now and kickoff. So I would keep an eye out for that one. Uh, to answer your question, Seattle was a team, I think we spoke about it early in the season, that we were pretty high on at the start of the year, particularly in week two when we saw that kind of change in the offensive structure of the team uh, when they went to New England and, and they let Russ pass the ball, uh, particularly on early downs at a much higher rate than we'd ever seen before. Um, I think we sat down three or four weeks ago and looked at them and just defensively have those huge concerns. They're going for gashes left, right and centre. and. I think we probably were at a sell point at that stage and we reflected that in our outright book. So I think we've done a good job of jumping ahead of them. I wouldn't give up entirely on them because I still think they've got a lot of talented footballers. Um, The run is a big issue for them, though, and obviously at safety as well. Having Jamal Adams is a help. Um, But overall, I, I, I would tend to be a little bit... We're probably more down on Seattle right now than a lot of the market. Although, as you say, I think it's becoming a widespread consensus now and you know, maybe there's a little uptick in them over the next few weeks. So uh, messy answer and a, I guess a messy view, <laughs> a, mess, a messy view overall. But I think you just got to look for Seattle to be a team where you buy and sell uh, reflective of what the opinion on them is in a certain spot, because I don't think they're ever as good as people made them out to be or as bad as people might think they are. Well, I think it's a messy game that Payne and I are about to break down uh, before we close things out in the show. But one game we did cover earlier, John, before we Bid you a fond farewell, of course, is the Monday night football game. The Rams right now surging at the right time. All the talk is about how good their defense has been, knowing they have a potential star at every single level with Aaron Donald up front, Jalen Ramsey cleaning things up at the back. Uh, Meanwhile, Tampa, they got healthy last weekend against the Carolina Panthers, started slow, but finished like a house on fire. Have you guys seen any early action on that particular game, either side or total, knowing that we're still 72-plus hours away from kickoff? Um. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a small move towards Tampa Bay. It's right where we we made it a four. Uh, we opened at three and a half. It's up to four now, uh, pretty much everywhere. Um, I, I personally love this matchup for Tampa Bay. I think it's a really good spot for them. I think the Rams, you know, we've seen Jared Goff with pressure. And I think Seattle last week where it was a perfect matchup for the Rams. And now you get Tampa Bay, who basically shut down the run entirely, I would imagine, with Henderson. And then you're going to, you know, the defense for Tampa Bay, from my mind, will be much better prepared for the play action that we know is the key and the secret to the Rams. The Rams also came off a bye uh, last week against Seattle, and we know how good McVeigh is in those scenarios as well. Uh, back on prime time, Brady back to business last week after the shocking performance against New Orleans, what what looks to be a really bad matchup for Tampa Bay. 
I just think this is a perfect spot for the Buccaneers to roll, and you know I expect them to win pretty easily. John making a strong case, Payne. We'll have to see, uh, you know, analysis-wise, everything we talked about more or less echoes a, a lot of our sentiments that we shared. Anything else you'd like to pepper John with, Payne, before we let him go? No, that's it. I'm I'm efficient. I'm concise, and we, we just let John get out of Dodge here. Let him go about <laughs> his day. Two words nobody has ever used, John, to describe me in my illustrious past <laughs> in, this fi- in this fine business. Can't thank you enough for all of your time. Appreciate the insight. I know our listeners uh, really enjoy uh, and continue to let us know how much value this segment provides each week for all their handicapping. And even more reason, we encourage you guys to follow John on Twitter at Jay Sheeran, J-S-H-E-E-R-H-A-N-1981 to get all those tidbits and nuggets on game day. John, best of luck this weekend, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next week, same time, same place. Thanks, guys. You know what, Payne? It's enough when I have to deal with you on a day-to-day basis who can't stand any hockey talk, but now that John apparently feels that he's squarely on your bandwagon, not quite sure we're going to be able to invite that guy on every week. Does Ireland not have a good hockey team? Last I checked, they don't have a very good football team either. I think they've played, like their last seven international fixtures, I think they've scored one goal after a nil-nil draw against Bulgaria. But we haven't talked soccer with John. I think it'll be fun to bring that up. I know that's what you're looking forward to as we inch closer to Euro 2020. Well, I guess it's Euro 2020 played in 2021. He kind of feels like a rugby guy. I'll have to ask him. He definitely knows his NFL and the information that he has brought to the podcast in terms of the kind of stuff that they've seen has been outstanding. Anything really kind of surprised you that he had to share in terms of the games uh, in regards to uh, seeing the public absolutely unloading on the Cleveland Browns here? It does not surprise me, no. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So, oh, you couldn't get a chuckle? You made me feel like the inside joke was just me on the inside there. No, there's no inside <laughs> joke. I, I don't know. I have no idea How what you would be you implying right in that kind of situation. On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, 11 would be my level of nerves. But we'll get to that. We still have one game left to go. And uh, that game, of course, is a Thursday night football showdown between the Seahawks and and the Arizona Cardinals. It's the Seahawks, a modest two and a half point favorite. Lay a dollar twenty at FanDuel. Total on the game fifty seven and a half. And when you look at the Cardinals, they have dominated where it matters most at the betting window against the Seahawks, going six one and one against the number the last eight. However, they have not swept the season series against the Seahawks since two thousand nine. But they've been very good at Century League Field, going four and one straight up the last five trips. If Seattle is able to get through this landmine pain, it appears to be smooth sailing, so to speak going forward as they'll play at the Eagles next week, home against the Giants, the Jets, and then at Washington. But Seattle's offense going to be down a key cog. It so appears Adam Schefter reporting Chris Carson. Long shot to be out there, but Carlos Hyde should be back, maybe giving the Seahawks a little bit of offensive balance that they've desperately lacked during this rough patch. So I'll just be open and honest here. Don't have a ton on this game. Very sharp money. That's not very helpful. Very sharp money on Arizona. I was initially looking at this as a spot for Seattle, and I'm praying that it does not get to two and a half. Although I fear that it may, I may be forced with. You're going to get a two and a half flat. We didn't see resistance <laughs> at three. We're going to get a two and a half flat. You get another wave there, buddy boy. I, I I completely agree. You mentioned the return of Carlos Hyde. That could be big because Corey Peters and Jordan Phillips, two key cogs on the interior of the Cardinals' defensive line, haven't practiced all week. Appear like they're going to be out. You just wonder if this is going to be a little bit more of get back to your old school principles here from from Shoddy and Pete trying to establish the ground game a little bit with those key defensive linemen out for Arizona. 
And they haven't been overly stout stopping the run this season anyway. Now, Seattle is without their starting center, Ethan Posick, which is a, a significant loss here. Through the air, Russell Wilson was very good in Arizona against these guys until he started to turn the ball over. And if you look at some of the past history in this divisional matchup, this is a series that Russ has not fared well in at home. And it's the reason why worse iterations of Arizona have come in to Seattle and beaten better iterations of Seattle with the 12th man. And that's obviously not going to be in play this evening. So, you know, again, very sharp money on Arizona. I'm just a little, it just doesn't feel like the best spot here, right? We saw Seattle go up there. They had a double-digit lead, blew that game in Arizona. This feels like a game where typically they get right, but we're not quite sure what Seattle is at this point. The other question mark here that you would have to ask yourself is this, how healthy is, is Tyler Lockett? We know he's battling a little bit of a knee injury. They're calling it a strain. Practice in a limited fashion on Wednesday, short week, not the best because we know what's facing the other side of the field here, and that's Patrick Peterson. Done very well removing and erasing DK Ugh. Metcalf through a small sample size. And, and, not good for my fantasy team. <laughs> in three games against the Cardinals, DK has only been targeted 10 times. Caught three of those for 29 yards. So we talk about Patrick Peterson now getting a little bit up there in age. But he's still doing well handling the bigger, more physical wide receivers is evident by what he did against DK in the first matchup and what he's done in three total games against him. So if Lockett's not 100%, starts to make me a little bit nervous, obviously. And and I think it's probably apparent that he isn't 100%. So this is a game that I've just kind of stayed far away from. The total perspective, we made the game 58, but on the short week, Second division game, those tend to go under a little bit. Some question marks about Tyler Lockett's health. That's kind of what kept me off this game. Now, when you flip it around to the other side, and we can touch this quickly, Jamal Adams needs to earn his paycheck here. This is the game where your rate in free agency, I don't know how much of a free agency it's going to be. Seattle gave up a lot for him, so they're probably going to have to resign him anyways. But some of your negotiating leverage will come in a game like this. He wasn't in the first game. We know he's a box safety. He's got to remove Kyler's legs from this game. And if you can do that and make Kyler a pocket passer, it's going to go a long way is the unfortunate part in this one. <laughs> the other reason this line's coming down is Seattle's going to be without their two starting corners, Shaq Griffin and Quentin Dunbar. So as we talk about this, Todd, despite my number being like 3.4 on this game and being forced to probably lay 2.5, these injuries are starting to, to keep me off the game as, as we, we talk about them out loud. I'm glad this is a safe, com- a safe space where we can... I <laughs> can understand completely <laughs> where you're coming from on that front. Uh, when you look at Kyler Murray Payne, uh, we talked about how inefficient he was early in the season. Have you seen him take strides over the last couple weeks in terms of spreading the football around? We know DeAndre Hopkins is putting up gaudy numbers. Christian Kirk comes and goes. Uh, But when you look at Arizona, I think he was mediocre. I I don't know if that's the right word to use for the bulk of the game against Buffalo. I didn't like the red zone inefficiency when the Cardinals continually kicked field goals inside the 20. Uh, And then, of course, a lot of those mistakes or some of the discrepancies get erased with that improbable Hail Mary where DeAndre Hopkins goes up and plucks that thing out of triple coverage. Yeah, we did mention last week in terms of trending metrics in the first four weeks, Kyler was very inefficient as a passer. He relied much on his legs. Now, 
the legs are still a huge part of his game and the passing has upticked. He's just been simply more accurate. He's getting a little bit better chemistry with guys like DeAndre Hopkins, Christian Kirk, his old buddy from A&M there. There is a nice rapport growing and so teams haven't been able to focus as much on Hopkins. So the offense is is coming around a little bit from that perspective. It also looks like Cliff has said, hey, you know, let's push the ball a little bit further down the field. A lot of dink and dunk early on in the season. So you're watching his A dot increase as well as the season's moved on. It's opened some things up. Kenyon Drake, it is a short week, but did return last week. We'll see what his workload looks like a little bit, but that provides a nice little punch in the backfield as well. So for me here, I'm, I'm starting to, uh, to think this is probably a good line. And, and again, the guys that we are aware of and, and do some work with really like Arizona in this spot. They were not only getting down money at three and a half, but we're even getting money down at three even. And so it tells you the strength of the position on this game. And so I'm not sure I want to buck that. And, and you know, if you're forced to bet this game, if, if you need action on it, um, you know, these are guys that, that do this professionally that are on Arizona. But I'm, I'm you know, I don't necessarily agree with it numbers-wise, but when you dig into some of the past history of this series and Russ's struggles, it, it does make some sense. Just not for me. On the side, no, and I think here. it's a, I think it's a very interesting game, uh, one that's going to tell us an awful lot about these two teams and whoever ultimately emerges victorious going to have an inside track to winning the NFC West. And for Seattle bottoming out, we saw them take money against against San Francisco. They raised their level of play. The 49ers, not nearly as formidable as what Arizona is going to provide there. But you never rule out the heart of a champion if Russ can get the best out of his teammates, somehow get a stop or two. Uh, I think this should be a fantastic Thursday night football game, even if you're not invested pre-kickoff. Always explore some of the live lines available. Prop markets as FanDuel has you covered with multiple ways to get you into the game. A lot of good primetime games You can follow Payne. Yeah, very good. Three very good primetime games for sure. We'll keep our fingers crossed that this Raiders-Chiefs game goes off on Sunday uh, without a hitch. You can follow Payne on Twitter, at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there. Of course, you can follow John Sheeran as well, and we encourage you to do so. Most importantly, however, follow the podcast, at Bet the Board Pod. Follow all those lovely rules. Offer us a five-star review, and you too can be entered to win a little bit of holiday swag right around the right time of year. But Payne, we do have one final order of business to transact on this very fine podcast before we take a, well, longer than 72, 96-hour hiatus from one another. Bless the Lord. And uh, we'll reconvene with a holiday edition. But where are we going to find our best bet in the National Football League? Let's go to the rotation number 451. The Philadelphia Eagles, plus three and a half. You're going to make me do it. You're going to make I, me do it, aren't you? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with this. Nothing wrong with this. So, <laughs> one, it's the number. We're seeing Cleveland do very well at home the last two weeks against some not-so-great opponents, having some weather sprinkled in there. And I think that's probably where the edge lies for Philadelphia. Is, is While the totals have been suppressing some of the Cleveland offensive output, I believe the defensive numbers have been assisted by that as well, obviously. And I think Philadelphia has a chance to show well. The injury report's the best it's been all season. The offensive line looks like just about every single guy that could come back is going to return this week for Philadelphia. Loved the burst that I saw from Miles Sanders. Boston Scott showed well. I think what Philadelphia does offensively with their tight ends and running backs can give the Browns some trouble here. 
And bottom line, this is about perception. This is about the number. We made this game Cleveland minus one. So very few opportunities from that perspective. Are you going to get this kind of line value? We had Doug Peterson call his team out this week. They're still in first place in the division as bad as it's going to, to sound, right? Still in first place, still with a lot to play here. Three and a half just, just feels like a lot. Philadelphia Eagles, let's hope this is their San Francisco swan song or whatever we want to call it, uh, and they'll raise their level of play. Not going to lie, Payne, a little bit worried about that run defense. Let's hope Carson Wentz gets the ball out of his hand and that Miles Garrett somehow doesn't play as he was dealing with an illness early in the week. But uh, so, no, so, so understand the spot. No, I, I, listen, I, I completely hear you. The run defense hasn't been up to snuff that we have grown accustomed to in past seasons from the Eagles defense. Now, what I will say is, I think if you're going to look at prior matchups and you'll go back to last year and see how Kevin Stefanski and, and Minnesota did very well against this Eagles defense, I will say this. He had a lot more room to operate because there was guys named Thielen and Diggs on the outside and Philadelphia didn't have a guy named Slay. So I think this is really a matchup where we see the first time without weather what Cleveland's offense looks like without OBJ. And if you can have Slay remove Landry from this game, what are the other options? So I think at that point with Doug calling out his guys, specifically a lot of defensive guys along that, that line, and being able to stack the box a little bit better this year, not having to worry about us to, you know, a Diggs or a Thielen outside, we should see a little bit of an improved defensive run unit here from Philly in this spot. Just get the rock to Miles Sanders. Let him tote it 20 to 25 times, and the Philadelphia Eagles will be just fine. Philadelphia Eagles, your best bet. Make sure you grab the three and a half. We'll see how long the particular price lasts in the market. Uh, anything else, Payne? See, you'd like that to get was off a sign of confidence and, there. You know, you're aware. <laughs> anything else that you'd like to get off your chest in this safe space before we close up shop this fine Thursday? No. Since this podcast has seemingly taken about seven and a half hours out of our lives. No, I think we're uh, we're good to go. We will be back here next late Tuesday evening, early Wednesday morning for your uh, trips for Thanksgiving. So that's when we'll be yes. back. Sign up for the RSS feed, subscribe to the SoundCloud channel and everything else. You'll have an iTunes, wherever else you listen to your podcast. You'll have the podcast as soon as it drops. We love the support that you guys show on social media. But for those folks who oftentimes wait for uh, us to tweet it out, just be the first to listen to it. So as soon as it goes live, you'll have access to it in case Payne and I forget, forget to send it out on, on the various social platforms. Boom. Off and running. On that note... We will wish everyone the best of luck with all of their NFL Week 11 investments. And come Sunday afternoon with the Philadelphia Eagles ticket in hand, we will see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.